It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Sholem Hartman Institute. Today is Thursday, December 17th, 2020, and this is, for heaven's sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today's podcast is entitled The Return of the Jewish Crisis Narrative. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish people. A unique and exhilarating aspect of American Jewish life over the last few decades was the decrease in the centrality and, for many, the relevance of the Jewish crisis narrative. Now, what's the Jewish crisis narrative? It's a narrative which sees Jewish life and survival as inherently tenuous. And it has been a part of Jewish history since our national inception in Egypt thousands of years ago. We were then, and for much of our history, continued to be the outsiders whom the indigenous population attacked and marginalized. For many Jews around the world, Israel was worthy of support because it provided a safety net should Jews be subjected to anti-Semitic attacks. Israel was the singular place where Jews would always be at home and accepted. Israel was the solution to the crisis narrative. The uniqueness of the American Jewish experience is of an unparalleled sense of at-homeness and acceptance with a consequent diminishing of this crisis experience. With America serving as home, the significance of the crisis narrative for the relationship with Israel also diminished. As a result, the major educational objective of the Institute's I Engage project is to develop ways to replace this crisis-based narrative with a values-based one, and thus ensure an ongoing relationship with Israel for North American Jews who are at home. But something seems to be changing. Despite this predominant sense of American Jewish at-homeness, over the last number of years, we have witnessed a dramatic increase in Jewish anxiety about anti-Semitism in America. Why has the crisis narrative returned as an integral part of Jewish life? Is it again a factor in Jews' relationship with Israel? What significance does this have for Jewish life in the future? Yossi, let me begin with the following question. For the last 12 years, you and I have been spending so much of our life trying to replace and develop 
a coherent values-based narrative to replace the crisis-based one. In a moment, we're going to talk about the return of that which we thought was over. But why was it so important for you personally when you joined this project? Why was it so critical for you to build a relationship with Israel around a values narrative? And what is this values narrative that you were searching to find? Look, I grew up with a crisis narrative. That not only defined my Jewish identity, it defined my soul. And I know how exhilarating the crisis narrative can be. It can really get you going. But I also know the tremendous price that you pay spiritually in terms of your creativity. When you allow your enemies, in effect, to define you, when they set your agenda, you're always in a responsive mode. You're always defensive. And I spent the first half of my life immersed in the crisis narrative and the second half of my life trying to free myself from it. <laughs> and so when you offered me a place at the table at our weekly seminar where we were trying to figure out how do we create an alternative to the crisis narrative, that was exactly what my soul was longing for. And so, look, you know, Daniil, it's really important for me that Jews should be smart about threat that we not be naive. You know, there's something deeply embedded in us. We have a naivete gene. We so much want the world to be different than what it is. And so Jews need to be alert. We need to be smart. But at what price? At what price do you allow this constant feeling of threat to take over your identity? You know, it's interesting. The values narrative which I was looking for, and we've been looking for it together, is one which asks not why do you need Israel in order to save you from death, but why a relationship with Israel enriches your Jewish life. How does Israel inspire me? Now, one of my greatest fears about the crisis narrative, and you and I over the years debated, does it still exist or is it still there? Is it not there? Part of what I always believed is that not only, as you said, is the crisis narrative does not give us a purpose and control of, of who we are as Jews, but the crisis narrative, I didn't believe was going to be effective. Because if the defining feature of North American Jewish life is that we're Jews by choice, we don't have to be Jewish. We could leave. This is not Nazi Germany. This is not defining you by race. And if... 50, 70 plus percent Jews are married to non-Jews. And in the future, we'll have one Jewish parent, one non-Jewish Why choose a Jewish identity, which is laden with death, when you have an alternative to leave? And the only reason to be Jewish is because it excites you. And if we are all Jews by choice, we also have to be Zionists by choice. Because I can't guilt you or I can't force you into a relationship because the danger is not an inherent part of your American existence if you could opt out. But let's now go straight into where you're pushing us, Yossi. What's the fundamental cause for the change and the resurgence? Jews are testifying, yes, I'm frightened. And I hear it, by the way, across the board. I hear it on campuses. I hear it in synagogues. I hear it in cities where a third of the population is Jewish. What's the reason for this strange phenomena, or maybe it's back to the old normal. 
Well, it's back to the old normal where most of world Jewry has been since the Second Intifada. You know, the 1990s was a time of hope for Israelis during the Oslo years, at least for many of us. I spent a year in Europe, 1989-1990, reporting on the fall of communism and traveling to Jewish communities in Eastern and Western Europe. And there was this sense of unbelievable hope the, the promise of a new Europe was finally being realized. There, too, they felt it. And so the crisis narrative through the 1990s really seemed to be on its way out. The Second Intifada comes. The blowback is happening all around the diaspora. Terror attacks on Jewish communities in Europe, elsewhere. Only American Jewry seemed to be protected in some way, immune from the crisis narrative. And now, in the last few years, with America seeming to come apart, the atmosphere of fear and hatred and mutual recrimination, American Jews are inevitably feeling less safe. They're feeling caught between growing anti-Semitism from the far right, from the far left. They're feeling squeezed from both ends. And so there really is a sense that American Jewry is now much more emotionally aligned with the rest of the Jewish people. But empirically, it's, it's not as bad. It's not the same as France. So what is it? Why is it so prevalent now in the contemporary Jewish experience, also in North America? Look, I think partly it is a reflection of just how at home American Jews are, that as America convulses, Jews are feeling it in their souls. And the post-World War II liberal era that allowed American Jewry to thrive and to fully own its at-homeness, that's what's under assault in these last few years. And so in that sense, when American Jews say to us that they feel existentially threatened, and we say to them from the perspective of living in Jerusalem, you, you know, think yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> Let me tell you about my problems. <laughs> but we, we need to listen to their angst more deeply. I think there is objectively a real shift. And I wonder what you feel about this, because you mentioned this idea of being pushed from both sides. I think Jews always, always knew that there was right-wing anti-Semitism. There always were groups of people who we knew hated us. But they were on the radical fringe of the right. And we, we knew that they were there. And I think part of what's changed is their political significance and mainstreaming, or the fact that they're not clearly and immediately removed. They're part of, in the American partisan discourse, they're part of one of the, of one of the colors. They're there and they're vocal. All of a sudden, from the right, it was there, but it's much more significant. It's not rejected. It's, it's supported by various dog whistles of a president or other people and different congressmen or senators, or et cetera, it's there. So on the one hand, it's now much more than present. But I think there's another side. You know, you and I, we have dual citizenship. We live in two worlds. We live as Israelis and as Americans. So much of our time is back and forth. A big part of the American dream for me, and I'm sure for you, was the sense that America wasn't going to be Europe, that liberal America, we were accepted in a way that we would never be accepted in Europe. But that at-homeness came from the liberal side. 
And I think part of what's confusing Jews is that we know about the right wing. We knew about one and we had learned how to handle it because liberal America marginalized that. But now there's an increased sense that Jews are being pushed to the outside in the liberal camp too. We fought for minorities, we fought for human rights, and now we're being positioned as part of this white majority. We're, we're being silenced too. We're not welcome. I know that anti-Zionism is not the same as anti-Semitism, but the experience of a Jew of Israel is important to me. And when you other me because of my position on Israel, then I experience that as anti-Semitism. And so where do I belong now? I think you're hitting on a really important point, which is that most American Jews live in liberal spaces. The universities, the media, and the irony is that these are now becoming the battlegrounds. And certainly Jews who feel a connection to Israel are under siege, are feeling increasingly under siege. I spoke at a Midwest Western campus, I won't say which one, and a couple, both professors, invited me to dinner and needed to pour out their hearts to unburden themselves. And they told me that they had invited Amos Oz to speak on campus. Now, Amos Oz, Alava Shalom, the late Amos Oz, was not only arguably Israel's greatest writer, but one of Israel's leading voices for peace and reconciliation, one of the stalwarts of liberal Israel. Because they invited Amos Oz to campus, they were being ostracized by their wow. colleagues. They were being labeled as the Zionists. And this was a, a mild Midwestern campus. This wasn't Berkeley. And they had this desperate need to tell me this. But what I remember most about that conversation was that we're sitting in a restaurant and they're leaning over to me and whispering as they're telling me the story. Now, objectively, there was no need to whisper. They weren't under any threat. And I don't know how deeply they were really being ostracized. They both had tenure. But there's something deep that was triggered. And that, for me, was a kind of a bellwether of what was coming. Again, you know, the, this sense of, of being at home, but being a little less at home, or America, listen, America's still not France. And Jews are unbelievably at home. And I think also part of the violence of this partisan atmosphere makes everybody a little less comfortable. Violence is in the air. And whenever you're a minority, you're frightened even more. But I want to ask you one last question. What do you believe this return of, it's not a crisis narrative, let's call it a crisis experience, mm, as, as a part of the American Jewish experience? It's not a neuroses, it's, it's real. You're on campus, and if you're pro-Israel, you're othered. It doesn't feel as safe. Who are we? Are we allowed to march in this liberal cause or that liberal cause? Where are we? How do you think we have to respond in the future? It's there, so obviously we don't want to deny it. I love what you've just said, that it's not the return of the crisis narrative, but it is the return of a crisis experience. And I think that that's a crucial distinction. Because a crisis narrative is a worldview. An experience yeah. is part of a larger web of life. And American Jews, 
will need to adjust to a new reality in which there is an element of threat that wasn't there before, but that's not the defining characteristic of their Americanness, of their at-homeness. And I think this is especially important. I think we Israelis have a very important role to play here because we need to stop pointing to examples of anti-Semitism and American Jewish insecurity as proof that the classical Zionist critique we won, we won. And you know, we have our problems here too. <laughs> and, and I don't want Zionism to win at the expense of the diaspora. Something really wonderful happened to Jewish life in the last few generations. And that was the end of exile. And the end of exile had two components. We achieved national sovereignty in Israel and we transitioned from exile to diaspora abroad. And I'm not ready as an Israeli American, those two precious identities, I'm not ready to concede either of them, to concede that the Zionist vision and the American Jewish vision that we grew up on, that we were nurtured on, that freed us as Jews, as, as human beings, I'm not ready to give up on that. And we still live, and this is so important for us to affirm, we live in the most blessed time, I believe, in all of Jewish history. I know that's a big statement, but I don't think Jews have ever been freer, more secure, more powerful than we are now, and potentially, I hope, more creative. You know, as we were talking, I felt the need to drop the word narrative. And I think part of what you want to do as somebody who, who feels obligated to listen to people and not to tell them who they are, but to listen to their experience, is that we need a more nuanced, complex, multidimensional relationship with Israel. And when you tell somebody, ah, you have no fears, they're not in the room anymore. Part of what we have to recognize as we are running to a new future, to recognize that that future is not beautiful. There's a lot of problems on that road. And I think we have to add that back into the conversation. And that will be part of the experience. The question will be whether that will be the only part of the experience. We haven't always been that successful in navigating back and forth. Everything becomes partisan. You're either a crisis experienced Jew or a values experienced Zionist. And, and the truth is, why can't we have both? Why can't we accept that in many places in Jewish life in North America, it doesn't feel as safe? It doesn't mean that Israel, by the way, is the most safe place either. It just means that part of what Israel's about is that's the one place that I will always be at home, or at least it's worthwhile talking about that, maybe on a future podcast, whether Israel really is at home for all Jews. But, but at least I have that. And then with that sense, to ask the larger question, where are we going? Now let's bring in our Chavruta, Ilana Steinheim. Shalom. My name is Omri Shasha, and I want to invite you to join me on an exciting intellectual journey together with faculty from the Shalom Hartman Institute in our new Hebrew language podcast, Hesket Ushma. In our first season, we're focusing on the long history of cultural clashes between Judaism and its surroundings, from the Bible until today, looking at how it's interacted with everyone from Canaanites to Christianity and Islam, discussing thinkers like Maimonides, Theodor Herzl, and the Chada'am. You can find the show on Spotify and other podcast platforms by searching for Hesket Ushma in Hebrew or by going to our Hebrew website.
Ilana, oh. wonderful to be with you. What classical sources could you share with us that, that could help us think about this question and the experience of this time? Before I do that, I just want to make one quick comment on what I heard there. I think the question of sacrifice is something I would add in there, which is my great-grandparents knew that they had to sacrifice something of their Jewishness in order to fit in in America. And I'm not sure that my generation knows what that feels like. And the convergence of anti-Semitism on the left and anti-Semitism on the right is making Jews realize that there are moments when we're being asked, what are we willing to sacrifice in order to fit in? in order to make coalitions with other groups. So I, I just wanted to add that to the conversation. In terms of a piece of Torah that I think really captures this, I think what we're really talking about in crisis narrative and values narrative is the question of coercion versus agency, right? How much are we sort of forced into this and how much are we choosing it of our own volition? And for that, I think the classic, really just beautiful image is evoked by the rabbis when they talk about the revelation moment. You know, there's a strange word used in the Bible in Exodus 19, describing where the Israelites were standing vis-a-vis -vis Mount Sinai at the revelatory moment. And it says they were standing which probably means just the bottom of the mountain. But of course, the rabbis look at this and say, oh, they're standing under the mountain. We can do something with this. And I, I want to share with you two different versions of how the rabbis understand under the mountain and being under the mountain, because I think it's very relevant to what we're talking about here. The first is from the Mechilta, which is pretty early. I mean, it's the first few centuries of the common era. And it describes this idea of God lifting up the mountain of Sinai and the Israelites going under for protection and love and intimacy. And here's what it says. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. This teaches that the mountain was torn from its place and the Israelites came nearer and stood under the mountain. As it says in Deuteronomy, and you came near and stood under the mountain. Concerning this, Song of Songs says the following verse, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, Show me your countenance. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet and your face is fair. The image that's being evoked here is one of protection and intimacy and love. And you know what? It's not people are chasing us under the mountain and that's why we choose it. It's we want something special. We want something just unique, a relationship. And a few, literally just a few centuries later, the Babylonian Talmud completely changes the image. Listen to this version. They stood at the foot, literally under the mountain. This is Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 88a. Rabbi Avdimi, the son of Chama, the son of Chasa said, this teaches that God held the mountain over them like a barrel and said, if you accept the Torah, great. And if not, here shall be your grave. Meaning they took an image which in one generation is protective, intimate home, and in another generation feels, well, that's coercive. You felt threatened. You had to go there because you were threatened because it was crisis. You didn't have a choice. And I love even just this beginning because I think there's truth in this for our Israel story. What one generation looks at as what an incredible sanctuary, what a home, 
another generation looks at, why are you telling me I have no, no other choice? I have plenty of choice. There's no crisis here. I'm doing just fine. And so this Talmudic passage continues and actually doesn't want this to be the defining feature of the relationship with God. And so it continues as follows. Rabbi Acha, the son of Yaakov said, this is a great claim against the Torah. The Jews can say we were coerced. We never wanted this. We were coerced. Let us out of this. So Rav said, don't worry. The coercion ends at some point. When? In the Purim story, they accepted the Torah again in the days of Ahasuerus. In the Purim story, as it is written, they upheld and they accepted, which is about they upheld and accepted the days of Purim. But Rav says they upheld what they already accepted. Torah. The thrust of this image is we don't want a commitment that is inspired mostly by coercion and by crisis. It doesn't last. People turn around and say, I was forced into this. Why are you forcing me into this? We want an experience that is motivated by some sense of agency. And the Purim story, I think, is perfect because where's God in the Purim story? Is God's name even in the book? God's name is not even in the book. It's a complete choice for a group of people who could have said, we just solved something on our own politically. We're perfectly at home in Persia. Everything is great. We just solved a big political problem using political means. What do we need God for? And they choose and they say, we need God because God's actually a key part of our lens on the world and who we actually want to be. And one more layer of this choice and this agency this story is being told in Babylonia, in the Babylonian Talmud. It's being told in the Persia of their day, geographically even. And this is the rabbi's way of saying, we're willing to continue this even though no one's forcing us to. So I look at these images and I ask myself, where does commitment and long-term commitment come from? It may be a mix actually, that you might've needed to get a little coerced to start the movement and you, you had no other choice. But how does it grow into something that represents human flourishing, not just human escape, right? And that, I think, is what the rabbis are trying to get at in all of these different ways of looking at this. Let me ask you a question. When I heard you talk, there was a hierarchy. We're flourishing into. This is where we're getting to. Even though historically in the Talmud, the first one was the flourishing and the later one was the coercion. But that's what we're experiencing now. Where together with the flourishing and the choices that America provides, there's now a sense of I'm being forced, I'm being outed, I'm being othered. What happens when it goes backwards? What do you do? I think what's very instructive is to look at the 2000 years of Jewish diaspora. So much of our creativity was born out of circumstances that didn't always feel perfect. And yet we strove. And we built coalitions and we learn from other people and they learn from us. And I think what we're feeling right now is a moment where we are challenged to hold the realism of things kind of constricting and not abandon our agency within that. So there are places where a person might decide, for example, that it just becomes too difficult to be a Zionist on the left. Now, I'm gonna assert that's not coercion, that's a choice that you're making. 
if you can see within an environment that is getting increasingly pressured, the places where we have agency and we have to make decisions about what we're willing to give up on and what we're not, that to me is what this moment demands and calls for. And kudos to the people on the right and on the left who are doing that nuanced work of saying, you want me to be something simple? I refuse to be something simple. I want to turn Ilana to you and to Yossi. We recognize that there's a crisis reality, but listen, the crisis narrative had a profound impact on Jewish identity, both on Jewish identity and on Zionism. It created an experience of an importance of Israel, which fed generations and generations of Jews. I know I would wish that we would never have it, but is there a place for us as Jewish educators to say, you know what? Maybe we don't have to run away from this so much. Maybe it also has a place. Ilana and then Yossi. Look, I'm a Talmudist by training and by disposition because listen to the source that I just read to you. It's not willing to give up on the crisis narrative. There are moments where your identity is clarified because you're in a time where something becomes as obvious as day that you don't quite fit. And we are definitely in a moment like that. Thankfully, not as violent as it could be, but we in America, we are in a moment of recognizing that we do not fit. And what are we gonna do with that understanding of our identity? To me, it's not enough to just take sanctuary. Thank you. Yossi. You know, I love the metaphor uh, of the mountain over our heads for this time, especially the opposing ways of understanding that. Because we're living on the one hand with a sense of unprecedented security, despite everything. We, the Jewish people today is more secure, better able to protect itself than we've been in thousands of years. On the other hand, we're feeling something of the mountain hovering over us in the sense of threat and vulnerability. And we're going to need to relearn something which Ilana, you mentioned about the rabbis in, in Babylonia which is that you live under circumstances that are not ideal, and yet you live as if you are completely your own master. And Jews used to know how to do this. In some sense, I think we've all gotten used to not being in a place of acute vulnerability. That's really been our generation's experience. And we're going to have to relearn ambivalence, living under the mountain, both simultaneously protected by the mountain and also threatened. For so much of Jewish history, the sense of being outside, the sense of a collective identity created by alienation, we mourned it, but we also benefited from it. There's something about another dimension of Jewish identity Maybe Jews by choice is great. Maybe Zionism by choice is great. But maybe it assumes such a level of thoughtfulness, such a level of intentionality, which might be too, maybe we're not as interesting as we think we are. There's something about, about walking a path in which you feel a connection to Israel and Israel's importance. And that it's there. Now build on it, but you know you have something. I wish for a day when we don't need it.
but maybe we're more like Jews throughout Jewish history, despite the uniqueness. And maybe it behooves us to develop a Torah of the value of this identity. It's not that we want the crisis, but maybe there's something powerful that crisis also does for Jews. And maybe it's time for us to see the value in it and not juxtapose crisis to value. I so much appreciate Yossi and Ilana being with you as always. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It is produced by David Svitelman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman and music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. It was wonderful being with you.